0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series with James Jordan in the Book of Psalms. Specifically, he's working through the Psalms of Ascent, and here he'll be discussing Psalm 125. We do invite you to take a look at our YouTube channel and subscribe over there. We just began a series with Alistair Roberts on the subject of baptism. We also have past series on liturgy and work, how to read the Bible, the tabernacle, and a theology of music. We really hope that you enjoyed this brief time of teaching and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing Psalm 125.
1: We're in Psalm 125, Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land or lot of the righteous, in order that the righteous may not put forth their hands to do wrong. Second stanza Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. This again is the psalm of ascent sung apparently by the people as they came to the triennial festivals in Israel. And as they walked toward Mount Zion, they saw something that none of us probably have ever seen. The mountain on which Jerusalem was situated, Mount Zion, is in the middle of other mountains. And those mountains are higher. And so one has to come over the hill, one has to actually get up over and look down into upon Mount Zion. Also, when you stand in the middle of Jerusalem and you look, you can see that there are hills round about which seem to give a protection on all sides to the mountain. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which itself cannot be moved, but abides forever. Is it because the mountain itself is so stable, because Christians themselves are so righteous that they cannot be moved? No, it is because the mountains surrounding Jerusalem are like the Lord who surrounds His people. It is not the people of God in themselves who are strong, but God who is strong and who surrounds His people, just as the other mountains surround Jerusalem. And this is from this time forth and forever, and it is because God protects his people that they are unshakable and cannot be moved. Now the image of God surrounding his people is very common in the Bible. I'm going to read some passages which show that. We're accustomed to thinking that God built the house, built the universe as a house for himself, as a pavilion in which he would stay, just as in the temple. God is in the temple, and the temple all of us are around him. But the Bible also uses the image of us being in his house and him being the house that protects us and encloses us so that we're surrounded by God on all sides and that protects us. In Psalm 91, this image is used. Psalm 91, starting in verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord... My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is as a shield and bulwark. And then verse 9, For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. Now there are several images there, all of which speak of Us being in the center and the Lord being our protection on all sides. First, that God overshadows us, so that it's as if he was a great bird, and this image is used, of course, with the dove and other birds in the Bible. We are under his wings, or under the shadow of his cloud, and on all sides, he is like a refuge and a fortress. There's the second image. God is the refuge and the fortress, and we are inside, safe inside the body of Christ. In verse 4, He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you may seek refuge. Just as a baby bird hides under the wings of the mother bird, so we can hide under the protection of God whose wings will surround us on all sides. Then also in Psalm 105, verse 39, talking about the deliverance from Egypt, it said, He spread a cloud for a curtain and fire to illumine the night. When Israel came out of Egypt, you had, of course, the glory cloud which overshadowed them and gave them protection from the sun during the day and the pillar of fire which gave them protection from the cold in the night. And here it says, the cloud was like a curtain surrounding them and fire illumining them by night. The same kind of language is used in Isaiah 4. A couple of other passages here. Show you how common it is. Isaiah 4 verses 5 and 6. And this is speaking about the time when God has delivered his people. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy, and there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day, and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. So God and his cloud forms the protection environment of the people. This is reiterated in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 5, For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, that is Jerusalem, and I will be the glory in her midst. So both ideas are put there. One, that God is in the midst and we surround him, worshiping him. And also that he is a wall of fire around us. So don't try to put this together in your mind, but recognize that both images are used. God is a wall of fire around the church, and God is also the glory in the midst of the church. When Israel came out of Egypt and they came to the border of the Red Sea, God's fire moved around to the back of them and stood between them and the Egyptians. He was a wall of fire for them. Finally, one historical passage which shows this is in 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 17. And you'll remember that this was the time when the king of Assyria called all of his chariots and came into Israel And the man, Elisha, was there and his servant, and the servant was afraid and said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. All right? So there are the chariots of fire, and there is the Lord surrounding his people. The reason they are stable is because he is stable, not because of anything in themselves. They don't stand. Mount Zion could easily be moved. Mount Zion could easily be knocked down if it wasn't for the mountains surrounding it as the Lord surrounds his people. Now, this image of protection means that there is never any question but that the righteous are protected. And verse 3 tells us that. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous. Israel was divided into various lots. A lot is something which is parceled out by chance, or apparent chance, by the lot. And so the land was divided up in the beginning by the casting of lots, and each parcel was known as a lot. We still use the term today, get off my lot, get off my land. The scepter of righteousness shall not rest upon the land or lot of the righteous. scepter of wickedness will not rest upon the land of the righteous. Well, that tells us something. Do we have a scepter of wickedness resting upon our land today? Yes, therefore we are not the righteous. Very obvious. If we were righteous, the scepter of wickedness would depart. This you may take as an axiom of divine truth. The scepter of wickedness will never rest upon the land of the righteous. So as long as Mount Zion remains within the protection of the other mountains surrounding Jerusalem, as long as God's people trust in the Lord, those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved, as long as we trust in the Lord and live righteously, we don't have to worry about the scepter of wickedness being over our land. If we have the scepter of wickedness over our land, then that's proof positive that we are not living righteously, that is, the nation as a whole. There may be a righteous remnant, but it's not enough to cause God to withhold his hand of judgment. And the reason why God will not allow the scepter of wickedness to rest upon the land of the righteous is for an interesting reason, that the righteous may not put forth their hands to do wrong. Now, we have to think about that. If you have a wicked, evil government over you and it wears you down, then eventually you may be tempted to lose faith and to lose heart. Jesus said that he would teach the people how to pray that they might not lose heart, because when the battle is fierce, you tend to lose heart. And he taught them how to pray. Avenge me of mine adversary. He told the parable of the woman and the unjust judge. And how she said, avenge me of mine adversary. That is, destroy the wicked forces who are oppressing me. Entirely proper to pray for vengeance, especially when you're worn out from the battle. But even that can wear thin after a while. And God says, just as we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He says that he will not allow the wicked to rule over us for any great length of time, because that might drive us to do wrong. Our hearts are so deceitful that we will use any occasion to sin. The idea that suffering causes people to mature and become righteous is nonsense. Suffering just as frequently causes people to gnaw their tongues, as we see in the book of Revelation, and hate God all the more. Suffering by itself does not accomplish anything. Suffering mixed with faith leads to righteousness, but prosperity mixed with faith leads to righteousness. The occasion is not what's important, it's the righteousness, the faithfulness which counts. But God is so gracious to us that he says that he will not put us under oppression for any great length of time, lest it lead us into sin. In 1 Samuel 24 and verse 10, we find that David comes upon Saul when Saul is persecuting him, and David says, Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my and I had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is Yahweh's anointed one. It says here that the righteous may not stretch forth their hands to do wrong. Same language is used. David, being oppressed by Saul, is tempted to do the wrong thing, to engage in what at this point would have been an incorrect act of Christian resistance, to attack the Lord's anointed. And here God says that he would protect us from this, that the scepter of wickedness will not rest for a long time upon the righteous in order that they not be driven to stretch forth their hands and do wrong. That's a guarantee to the righteous. It's not a guarantee to modern America because modern America is not numbered among the righteous. But if there is a reform and a revival in our land, and we once again become numbered among the righteous, then we can be sure that the scepter of wickedness will depart. Finally, we have a petition. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But then there's the other side of the prayer. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. In other words, in a sense the choice is ours. If we choose to be good and be upright in our hearts, the Lord will do good to us. But if we choose to turn aside after the crooked ways of the unbelievers, the Lord will lead us away with the doers of iniquity. And that's the prayer of the righteous man. Those who choose to be good we ask God to bless. Those who choose to be wicked we ask God to curse. And when God engages in this act of blessing and cursing, then there will be, as the psalmist says, peace upon Israel. You don't get peace from ignoring the conflict. You get peace when the conflict has been settled, when the righteous live righteously and God blesses them. Do any of you have any questions over Psalm 125? Yeah. Uh, in light of that, I've always wondered. I read the book of martyrs, and you just find so many instances where so many Christians are just and yet, then within, within them, a group rises up and fights back, and God blesses them, and they drive the enemy back. I'm just wondering, you know, you find so many, you know, Christians being put to death during the Reformation, where really put you put that. I heard Mike Milstead say it too, he used go in and tell him about that. Then he'll be back to Egypt, but he said they just <sighs> were too wise in the way they acted, but they had a martyr kind Well, I think that's true. I think that, masochism lies deep in the heart of men and a desire to suffer for our own sins is always cropping up. People, When God blesses them, people are frequently very embarrassed about that because they feel they don't deserve it. And they feel that rightly. We don't deserve it. But we don't get blessed on the basis of our deserts, but on the basis of Christ's. But because they lack faith and they don't feel justified and they want to justify themselves and suffer for their own sins and pay the penalty for their own misdeeds, they want to flagellate themselves And you get this martyr complex. You had it in the early church and you had it in the Reformation. And I think Calvin is absolutely right. There are people who bring trouble upon themselves in the Christian movement because of their behavior, because they refuse to engage in legitimate subterfuges, because they get a messianic complex and they just have to go out and confront the adversary. That's partially true. But the other half of that, let's assume that all those people were rightly martyred. In other words, it wasn't their fault at all. They were simply trying to go about their business, trying to be at peace with all men as much as they could, trying to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves, going the extra mile with the civil magistrates and the other adversaries, and were being real low-key, and they were still hounded out and put to death. The fact is that what we have to recognize is those places were not lands of the righteous. There were some righteous remnant in them, and the remnant was persecuted. But if a considerable number of people had been righteous the persecution wouldn't have been there. The promise is made here to a community as a whole. If the nation of France had embraced the Reformation to a greater extent than it did, then the Huguenots and later on the Jansenists wouldn't have been persecuted out of France. But the French didn't, and they paid the price in the French Revolution a few centuries later. Those who hounded the Protestants and then hounded the Augustinians out of France themselves were completely obliterated in the French Revolution and never recovered, the very ones, the very upper class. So God has a way of bringing it down, but it's only when you have, not necessarily a majority, but a strong righteous element that these covenant promises will apply to a community. Obviously, when you have only a small minority of Christians, they may very well be persecuted. I guess that's what surprised me, that it seemed like there was quite a few, you know, according to Fox, you're not going to have a by there's hundreds of millions, and I don't know what the population was. Yeah, well, Fox isn't always reliable. If you'd have that many earnest Christians, the opposition wouldn't have been able to do anything. Anything else? Yes?
0: How would we determine, say, what biblical principles would be worthy of modernism?
1: Well, we know from the New Testament that the preaching of the gospel is worthy of martyrdom. And we know that certain things are not worthy of martyrdom because they are also set out in the Bible as being things that you flex on. And so throughout the centuries, for the most part, the church hasn't had a whole lot of question about that. You're not a martyr for political applications of the gospel, for instance. That's never been regarded as a proper means. It doesn't accomplish much. Because if you don't have people converted to the gospel cause, they're not going to appreciate the principles that you're talking about if they're extended away from the central aspect of the converting faith. So you see in the book of Acts that they wouldn't cease preaching and even in public. Although there would be times even there, Elisha, you've got the hundred prophets hidden in the cave. They were simply waiting for a better time. That wasn't the time to have a confrontation then. All they'd have done was get killed if they'd have had a confrontation. They had to wait by their time until uh, the situation improved. There are a lot of variables in it. I can't go into it in detail. <laughs> yeah. How do you see any refusal to kill Saul? and why Calvin's doctrine it? Well, there are several problems there. One is simply the Old Testament situation has certain typological aspects to it, that Saul was anointed as king over Israel and had certain more than just political meaning to it. And I've always personally felt that that was part of David's reason for not taking his life. But that is a difficult question. You could also say that David simply wasn't anointed and commissioned to do that. The lesser magistrate position would come into force In that situation, I should think, if the land itself had been so seriously persecuted by Saul that there was a need to do something, like when Jeroboam split with Rehoboam. But what you have primarily in the case of David is persecution against one individual because Saul hated that individual. And it's at that point that David said, I won't take personal vengeance. I won't take an opportunity for it here. It's not the land that's at stake It's just me that's at stake. And that's probably part of his thinking there as well.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name.